and good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you guys are listening to this podcast, and welcome back to Teachable Psych. Um, so today's episode, or I guess this guest, this month's guest episode, I had the opportunity to um, interview Dr. Glacier from University of West Georgia, and I hope you guys enjoy this little episode, and I'll see you guys when it's done. Would you like to start by introducing yourself? Sure. Um, do, you, do you record it, Sarah, or it's record, is it recording? Okay. All right. So first of all, um, you know, thank you, Sarah, for inviting me to uh, be on your, your podcast tonight, um, reaching out to me and wanting to know a little bit more about psychology in general. And uh, really, in particular, the kind of psychology that we do at West Georgia, um, which is the University of West Georgia, which is a kind of a very specific niche kind of psychology um, that you can't find um, anywhere else. Um, And so hopefully I get to talk about that. Um, But by way of introduction, uh, my name is Dr. Jacob Blazier. I'm an assistant professor of psychology at the University of West Georgia. Um, I am also a um, LPC, um, which just means a licensed professional counselor. Um, so I can, uh, you know, practice therapy. I can, you know, um, provide counseling services to individuals if I um, uh, am able to. Um, right now, I'm focused predominantly on teaching. Um, that's kind of taking up most of my time. But I'm hoping this next semester to start going back into therapy a little bit and providing uh, psychotherapy to, to, to individuals in need and um, working with um, clients. Um, so that's kind of my professional bio, um, I guess, in terms of research. Um, so for those of you might not, might not know that um, as a professor, you know, you have your, your teaching load typically, and then you also have a research program. And uh, my research program is predominantly in what's called critical psychology. So critical psychology looks at the way that um, power functions in institutions and in society. To put that differently, the way that certain groups, minorities, women, um, individuals that um, are, are not of the majority, not white, those that aren't heterosexual, the way that they might be subjugated or discriminated against um, in various institutions, society more generally. And so we try and analyze those um, forms of of subjection. Um, So that's my research program. Um, Right now, I guess I'm gearing up actually to start teaching um, and begin the spring, I guess it's 2022, (laughs) 2022 semester. And so we'll start that next week at uh, West Georgia. All right, thank you. Um, and could you explain what psychotherapy is to people that don't know? Yeah, Sarah, that's a great question. Um, psychotherapy comes out of what um, some of your um, you know, listeners or viewers might have heard of Sigmund Freud. So Sigmund Freud was a famous he founded the discipline of psychoanalysis. And so the forms of psychotherapy that we have today originate um, in a certain way 
under the umbrella of psychoanalysis. And so basically, um, therapy relies on a form of insight or what Freud called catharsis. And that just means a kind of realization or epiphany. In today's terms, we might talk about it in terms of processing, you know, previous traumas that you've been through, you know, working through, you know, why was that scary? You know, what was sad about it? Why did you feel that way? How can, how can you um, kind of um, add meaning to it to shift the narrative to one of being empowered? Um, and I guess it's worth noting that I'm trained, there's different theories of psychotherapy. Uh, I mentioned psychoanalysis, but there's also probably the most popular, which is CBT. That just stands for cognitive behavioral therapy. But I'm trained in a, what's called a postmodern approach to therapy, which is called narrative therapy. Um, and so I'm interested in the ways that stories and metaphors and um, images and icons, the way that these um, symbols help shape our identity and our understanding of ourselves in relation to the world. Okay. Um, so for first question is, um, do you have any experiences with like just psychology and education in general? Just uh, like teaching psychology or taking a psychology class? Either or. Either or. Yeah, so I, I am, you know, probably the, the most challenging class to teach is introduction to psychology. Um, and that's, you know, not, not just psych majors take intro to psych. Um, but it's a kind of a, a general ed requirement. So a lot of students. So I have students from biology, from anthropology, even chemistry, you know, will take intro to site. And so that's one reason why it's challenging is that I'm not just talking to uh, site majors. I'm talking to, you know, a, a broad range of students. But another reason it's so challenging to teach that class is because we have to cover so much material in one semester. And so we talk about, you know, neuroscience, uh, you know, how psychologists understand the, the brain in relation to our psychology. We move on to behaviorism. We talk about social psychology or the way that groups form. Um, and we end typically with what's called abnormal psychology which is what you would probably think of if you go to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist and you're suffering from a mental illness, you might receive what's called the DSM-5 diagnosis. And so for example, um, you know, in the popular, popular talk or popular discourse, people talk about depression. Well, if you're actually depressed, you're gonna have the diagnosis of MDD or major depressive disorder. And so we, we kind of end the, the survey course of introduction to psychology, um, studying the DSM, which is just the, the big manual. It's about this thick. Okay. It's really thick of all the different psychological diagnoses. Um, we look at schizophrenia. We look at, um, generalized anxiety disorder. We look at the personality disorder. Um, and so it's a, one of my favorite classes to teach is introduction to psychology, but it's also really challenging at the same time. 
All right, thank you. So what is your take on how psychology is related to education? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I, I believe um, very strongly in what's called a liberal arts education. And that just means that I believe students need to have a exposure to a diverse range of disciplines and be um, proficient in not just a specialized area. Um, so um, I think psychology adds to that liberal arts education because it provides students that maybe are majoring in biology, maybe even physics, it provides them with a more humane or humanistic understanding of, of life, of the world. To put that as in a form of a question, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to suffer? What does it mean to have emotion? How are we different than other beings? How are we different than animals? How are we different than, um, uh, how do we differ among ourselves? And so these are kind of the big questions that I think psychologists um, are able to add into the conversation to really um, um, kind of augment uh, the student's education. So what do you think is the number one problem for teachers with students in trying to get their attention and trying to retain it for a long period of time? That's a great question because I struggle with that as well. <laughs> you know, um, I, I, especially teaching introduction to psychology because I have dual enrolled students, which means that I have students that are in high school and are also taking, you know, college classes. I've got to be kind of entertaining. You know, I can't just stand up there and talk about psychology and philosophy and all these abstract ideas. I've got to make it applicable to their lives. I've got to make it concrete. How does this apply to you? And not just that, but I think, um, you know, getting students involved, you know, so for one example, um, I like to incorporate um, assessments. And so in psychology, part of what we do as psychologists is we administer assessments. And that just means like tests. So I'm sure you guys have all seen personality tests floating around on the internet. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the Myers-Briggs, um, uh, there's uh, the Big Five personality tests. And so I'll try and, you know, have the students take some of these different assessments and they get a, they get a kick out of it because it tells them something about themselves. You know, hey, look, I scored, you know, high on extroversion, you know, I'm and very low on introversion. And so it makes it, you know, apply to their lives and they can see how it is, um, you know, how it is applicable for them. Okay. So do you think you would teach differently if you didn't have a degree in, or background in psychology? 100%. I mean, I don't, it's, that's, a, it's a, that's a difficult question because I can't even you know, think about myself not being a psychologist. Um, and I say that in part because I treasure the human element, right? I know that when I teach, I'm not teaching to be a disciplinarian. I'm not teaching to make my students memorize facts. I'm not teaching students to memorize an algorithm to complete 
you know, a mathematical equation. I'm teaching to their, their, their spirit, their soul, their humanness. And I think that is, um, I mean, I would do that anyway if I wasn't a psychologist, but, you know, it would be, I don't know where it would be, but it would, it would, you know, be a similar, I guess, a similar kind of, of teaching style, I, I suppose. Um, so do you think that everyone that's in, like, the education field should get at least a bachelor's in psychology so that they're better, so they can better assess their students? I don't think a bachelor's in psychology, um, if you're going to go on to become an educator, um, but I do, you know, because I am an educator, right? I'm a psychologist, but I am an educator as well. Again, I have to um, advocate for this liberal arts model of education. And what that just means is that taking diverse courses that you would never really consider taking, um, that, that funnel into your final terminal or, or um, your bachelor's degree. Um, and I, you know, just to give you a personal example, when I was going through my own bachelor's degree, um, which I majored, I had a double major in psychology and philosophy. Um, I remember taking a class on, um, I don't even know, it was German a cinema pre-1940s, right? A very specialized class, but it was one of my favorite classes because I would never be interested in that topic. I could, I would never go down that avenue unless I was part of this liberal arts program. Um, and so um, while I don't think educators need to be, you know, have a bachelor's in psychology, I do think that it helps them immensely to have their university um, uh, advocate, offer, and emphasize the importance of a liberal arts education. Okay. Um, does your degree in psychology give you a different perspective on people and on yourself? I yeah I think that my degree in psychology makes me has made me a kinder person. Um, I think that I see how people suffer, um, you know, in therapy. You know, that's a very clear case that you know people suffer in front of me, and it makes me very empathetic and very compassionate. Um, in my own my own suffering, my own traumas, my own work that I've had to do. Um, you know, has really fed into, I've been able to channel that into my work as a psychologist. Um, so I think that um, to answer your question kind of more precisely, it's made me um, a kinder person. It's made me more understanding. Um, but it's also, and this is in conjunction with philosophy. So, you know, again, I, I, I you know, have this kind of, I am, I'm a psychologist, right? My PhD is in psychology, but I also do some work in philosophy, and um, it's made me a, a better thinker. And what I mean by that is it's made me able to think more rigorously in terms of concepts, in terms of thinking about the world, about how, you know, what exists in the world, how do we know what we know, um, what kinds of standards of beauty get propagated, um, and so these are really deep questions that philosophy considers um, that um, kind of uh, 
go hand in hand with my work as a psychologist. So this may be a little strange question, but how does the weather outside affect how little children learn, especially in elementary school and younger ages? That is, <laughs> um, I can, I can speculate, right? I'm not, so, you know, that would be a great question for a developmental psychologist. Um, so developmental psychologists specialize in the lifespan. And so, you know, they would be able to answer that better than I can. Um, but, uh, you know, just kind of going off my own knowledge, you know, I think the weather does impact us on the level of mood and on the level of affect. And so, you know, I mean, you probably can relate to this too, Sarah, is that when it's, you know, dreary out, when it's gloomy, when it's dark, that your mood tends to be a little bit more depressed. Um, and I, I, I assume if we extrapolate that, I assume that it's, it's similar um, for children. Um, and so, um, so, you know, I failed to mention earlier that more specifically, some of the work I do is in what's called eco-psychology or ecological psychology. So you, you guys know what ecology is, right? <clears throat> like the um, nature, you know, taking care of the natural world, <clears throat> reducing pollutants, and so on and so forth. And so I do have, you know, an interest in what's going on outside. Right. So the, you know, the, the weather, um, uh, the way that, you know, the, the cleanliness of the, our air, um, the cleanliness of our water, the, the nu nutri um, nutrition value of our food, like all of that impacts us, um, not just on our body, but it impacts us psychologically. And, and when we have more nutritious food, when we have cleaner water, cleaner air, better weather, you know, we're going to be more healthy in terms of feeling better about ourselves, feeling better about the world. Okay. And do you think um, how rigorous a class or, or not is taken, do you think that affects a positive human development? Uh, can you say, say it one more time? Is it um, depending on how rigorous a class is or not, um, do you think that affects a positive human development? You know, that's a good question, too. Um, so it depends on your definition of rigor. OK, you'll get, you know, you'll get some mathematicians, physicists, you know, people from the hard sciences that will say, you know, rigor is memorizing algorithms, memorizing formulas, memorizing facts, being able to, to complete patterns. And so a lot of people don't know this, but on an intelligence test or IQ test, uh, you guys have all probably heard of an IQ test. It's not the same as an achievement test, right? Your, your SAT, your, your ACT, those are achievement tests. But IQ tests are more interested in pattern completion, um, spatial rotation, all these other kinds of abilities. And so um, uh, to answer your question, um, I don't think that the, you're the, the, the being of course, being rigorous in those ways is important because it helps sharpen, sharpen our mental ability. 
But there's been recent introduction of what's called emotional intelligence. Okay. And so it's not just IQ, right? Cognitive kinds of intelligence, but there's emotional intelligence. And so I think a course, if it's done really well, can help students self-reflect, raise their awareness, understand their, their resistances, understand their traumas, understand their own psychology. And for me, that might even be more rigorous, more rewarding than some of the so-called hard sciences. Do you think, uh, like learning styles, that if that were taught, do you think that would help teachers and students? Yeah, I mean, it, it's um, we talk about different. Um, well, we, well, we talk about parenting styles um, during introduction to psychology, but I think um, absolutely uh, some of the learning styles. You know, some students tend to be more visual learners, so it helps them to see the information. You know, some students tend to be more auditory learners. You know, it helps them to hear me talk about the information. Um, whereas some, and this is what I'm trying to get better at, is helping students be um, tactile. And that just means kind of like engaged or hands-on. Right? So being able to kind of actually be practical and use the information in the real world, and that helps them learn it. Um, and so, you know, just an example, you know, coming up this spring semester, I'm teaching um, introduction to psychotherapy. And so I'm going to have my students uh, do kind of a mock therapy session. So they're going to practice therapy, you know, as part of the class. And so that's my way of trying to, to help the, the tactile or the experiential learner um, engage with the material in a more embodied way. So if you were to um, like do a research experiment on how um, a male teacher or a female teacher affects the way a student learns, how would you perform that? Uh, you'd like if have you, to... If you just had to like use surveys, like any certain questions you'd ask and how you'd analyze it. Um... I mean, it would be a challenge. Um, so you would, you'd want to, you know, to kind of be more precise with regards to your research question. Um, so what's the variable um, that you're trying to measure um, regarding, you know, the gender differences? You got, you got to pin it down. You got, or what's, um, uh, you got to make it measurable. You got to operationalize it um, so that you can provide a survey. You know, so if you want to see, I don't know. Um, you know, for example, do we, we could say this could be our research question. Um, do students tend to res respect male teachers versus female teachers? And it could be our research question. Um, and we could provide, we could develop a survey, or there might already be one out there in the literature um, that we could, you know, give to a certain sample of students. And let's say um, that, you know, we receive the responses back and more students tend to uh, say that, yes, 
they tend to respect male teachers over female teachers. So then what do we do with that information? There's a lot of, there's a lot of different ways that we can understand that. And of course, you know, when you write up your research report, you're going to have to put a bunch of information regarding your, your, the, the sample, the demographic of your sample. Um, you're going to have to provide a literature review, your methodology and so on and so forth. But for me, what that says, there's still this lingering remnant of um, misogyny in the university. And misogyny, um, for those of you that might not know, that just means a form of sexism or discrimination against women. Um, and so there's, 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 it's not overt. Sometimes it is overt. Right. Sometimes women are are just overtly uh, discriminated against. But many times it's what it's what social psychologists call implicit bias. And that just means it's kind of below the radar that we don't recognize it. But when we do a research project like that, sometimes it'll come it will rear its ugly head. Um, And so we've got to be really careful as psychologists. Um, you know, to uh, try and understand, you know, the the um, influences of all these factors. Okay. So to go back on what you stated earlier, and you were talking about critical psychology. So is it basically like critical race theory, but using psychology to analyze it? So that's a good question, Sarah. Um, so critical race theory um, has been really politicized and sensationalized over the last year or two. And it's unfortunate um, because I think a lot of people don't really understand the foundations of critical race theory. Critical psychology is different. Okay. And so critical psychology is not just focused on race, although it can be. Okay. But critical psychology is interested in the, the, um, I guess the power that, that normative or universal values have in dictating the rest of us. And so all I mean by that is, um, I mean, we could, I don't know, we could take, we could take the example of sexism, right? Critical, or I'm sorry, critical psychology might try and deconstruct the way that in the media, how are women portrayed to us? Are they portrayed as professional, competent, um, successful, um, or you know, are they portrayed as as you know, not so much? So that you know, we might take that approach. Or if we want to look at science, so science as a discipline is not that old. Okay, and a lot of people don't you know, because this word science has such cachet or such power, a lot of people, you know, think that if it's scientific, it's true. Well, you know, that that's not always the case. Um, So critical psychologists try and understand the way that science has grown out of a Western Eurocentric tradition and the way that it tries to propagate its values in league with things like capitalism Eurocentrism, globalization, and how these hegemonies or these modes of power 
stomp out indigenous values around the world. So to put that a little bit more simply, how are we as psychologists, how are we exporting? How are we, you know, transporting our values across the world and having other people conform to them? To put it as an example, would it be ethical for me as a psychologist to go to Vietnam who just had a, a tsunami and um, provide therapy, pr uh, render a diagnosis, and tell the um, population or the individual that's living in Vietnam that they're suffering from PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. Right, that's an ethical question. Right, and that, that's not, that's, there's not a clear answer. And so critical psychologists try and grapple with those, those very difficult questions. do you think has COVID affected education and how it's received in this generation? COVID has certainly, and I've witnessed this because I work for, of course, West Georgia, um, but I teach part-time online for NYU, uh, New York University. Um, and so I've, I've witnessed this in, in higher education. There's been a strong shift to delivering either online, virtual, or hybrid kinds of uh, learning. And I think that's both good and bad. You know, I think our virtual learning provides, you know, um, a lot of comforts in terms of being able to be at home and, and, you know, scheduling and so on and so forth. But I'm a big believer that in-person education is so powerful um and and I, that goes back to my my um kind of harping on the importance of a liberal arts education is that i can communicate to my students online the information but they don't feel the information the same way they would as if they were in the classroom with me okay and so i'm missing out on maybe 60% of what I could teach. You know, my passion, my mood, my feelings, my empathy, they, you can't feel that behind a screen. And so you need that in-person education to, um, to, to learn those things. Well, thank you so much for taking time your day for this interview. I really enjoyed it. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me, Sarah. Yeah, of uh, if you want, you can when you get it uploaded or whatever, you can send me the link, and I'll I'll be happy to to listen to it. Yeah, my first guest episode actually came out tonight at six. Okay. I can send you the link if you'd like. Yeah, send me the link, and I'll I'll listen to it. Well, thank you so much right. again. Okay, you take care. Thank you, you too. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Hi, guys, and welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed uh, this week's guest episode with Dr. Monsieur. And I hope you guys learned something new and that you hope on that. And I hope that you have a wonderful day and week. Yeah, see you guys next week. Bye.